Welcome to Marari Unmuted, a podcast about music, life, and finding new ways to engage the next generation of performer and chamber musician. Hello, and welcome back to Marari Unmuted. Uh, this is Steph Fry-Clark, and today I am here with John Stevens. And I'm here to basically interview John as he has been one of the biggest role models and inspirations that I've personally had as a musician from sort of throughout my my musical life. So welcome, John, to to Marari Unmuted. Hi, Steph. (laughs) Uh, I guess kind of to start, um, I'd love to hear a bit about your background from your perspective. Like, where are you from? Where did you go to school? Um, Where kind of was your general life path? Sure. Well, I, I grew up in a fairly small town of 20,000 people just east of Buffalo, New York, so western New York, town called Clarence. And uh, I'm going to digress right away. And one of the odd little small world coincidences about that is that I lived right down the street from the parents of your horn player, Jesse Thoman. Uh, her, Her dad lived up the street and her mom lived down the street, and I knew both of them, which is just one of those odd little things in life. Um, I happened to be have the good fortune to be in a school system that had an incredibly good band program. Uh, when I was in high school, our high school band played all the same literature that the Eastman Wind Ensemble was playing at the time. Uh, so I had played, by the time I graduated from high school, I had already played things like the Hindemith Symphony at B-flat and Lincolnshire Posey and that sort of thing. Uh, also, we had a lot of guest artists come in while I was in high school, uh, including Doc Severinsen, I think was there three times while I was in high school, uh, Irby Green, trombonist, saxophonist Donald Sinta. But for me, one of the main ones was Harvey Phillips, uh, the great tubist who was living in New York at the time and touring a lot as a soloist, uh, was at our high school three times, and he was always there to premiere new pieces that were commissioned for our, our high school band to play with him. That's incredible. Yeah, it was. It was, really a, cool. it was a great opportunity for me, and especially because I got to be sort of the rehearsal tubist, if you will, and actually play these things with the band in preparation for Harvey's arrival. Wow. So uh, I played a, a piece by Warren Benson called Helix, and a, yep. piece by, a piece by Eddie Sauter, who was half of the famous Sauter-Finnegan band uh, from the 50s, called Conjectures. And then uh, a composer named Manny Album wrote this wonderful jazz piece for Harvey Phillips and Doc Severinsen called A Brief History of the Blues. And I got to, to play that, too, before Harvey showed up to actually do it. So, That's wild. Yeah, it was. It, um, it was uh, a great chance for me to grow up in an environment where music was really nurtured. I mean, music in my high school was as highly thought of as sports, for example, which is a little unusual. Um, I decided to go into music when I went to college. Initially, though, not so much because I just loved it and I really had to do this. It was more because there wasn't really anything else that I wanted to do. Um, I liked music. I was good at it. You know, I had been the band president and studied with members of the uh, Buffalo Philharmonic. And, you know, I just, by the time I got to be a senior in high school, I thought, well, I might as well try this. It probably didn't hurt either that uh, the year before I graduated from high school, four uh, students from my school went to the Eastman School of Music all in one year. And uh, where I grew up, Eastman was sort of the place that you wanted to go. It was only an hour and a half down the road in Rochester. And um, I decided that that would be a good school for me to go to. I actually applied to one other school, uh, SUNY Fredonia, but only because I had heard all these stories about people that only applied to one school and then there was some kind of, you know, (laughs) malfunction, clerical error or whatever, and they were suddenly left out in the cold. So I I did have kind of an insurance policy. But uh, my senior year, our band actually played a concert at the Eastman School of Music in Kilburn Hall. And I was the soloist on that concert. I played this funny little piece called Scherzo by a composer named Alfred Bartles. And uh, Donald Knob, the tuba teacher there, came to the concert, heard me play, 
And so in effect, that wound up being my audition. When I went to Eastman and actually took my audition, we yacked for quite a while. And I think he asked me to play a a G on the bottom of the staff and a G an octave below that and a G on top of the staff. And that was it. Uh, (laughs) So it was a pretty stress-free audition. Um, I'd love an audition like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So on I went to the Eastman School of Music and spent four wonderful years there. I, I have to say, I'd been there for about a month when I realized that this was exactly what I wanted to be doing with my life and exactly where I wanted to be doing it with people I wanted to be doing it with. I mean, I, I very quickly morphed from, oh, I think I'll try this, to, wow, this I love this. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would say that was when I actually became a musician as opposed to somebody who played the tuba and enjoyed it. Um, I My experience at Eastman was uh, colored, I would say... <laughs> by the variety of what I did there. Uh, Unlike a lot of tuba players that sort of get onto what you and I know as the orchestral track where you you work on your excerpts and you work on your playing, but you're really aimed towards playing in a symphony orchestra. I love playing in symphony orchestras, you know, uh, all throughout my whole career. I always enjoyed it, but that was never my sort of main or sole thing that I wanted to do. I had played some jazz in high school, particularly as kind of the bass player in the the dance band. And um, I wanted to stay involved in the jazz program. So when I got to Eastman, the jazz program was being run by uh, Chuck Mangione. Uh, This was kind of before he became one of the most famous instrumental artists of the day. Um, And I, I went into the first jazz band rehearsal my freshman year and introduced myself and said, I'd really like to play in the jazz band, but I'm a tuba player. And I was thinking he probably would say, well, we don't have a tuba in the jazz band. But he stopped everybody immediately while they were warming up. And he said, "Okay, guys, we got a tuba player in the jazz band now. So start composing and arranging for tuba when you do your your charts. (laughs) And and that was one of my first real um, teaching moments that I remembered all throughout my career. You know, the the whole idea of of. uh, you know, giving people opportunities and not saying no and and kind of being flexible about that sort of thing. So I spent yeah. a lot of time. Uh, his position was taken over by Ray Wright, who had been the music director at Radio City Music Hall right after that. And Ray was great. He started a studio orchestra and I studied jazz arranging and, and I really immersed myself in the jazz program. The other thing, besides the usual tuba stuff uh, that took up a lot of my time and energy and interestingly enough, was definitely a, a role model, if you will, for my own career later on. Uh, my freshman year, I was placed in a brass quintet, uh, all with players that were all older than me. And we played very substantial literature immediately. Um, there wasn't a lot of literature by today's standards back then, but we started with, you know, some really tough stuff and I really loved playing chamber music. So by the end of freshman year, where you get to know your classmates better, there were five of us from our class. Actually, one guy was a year older and we formed a quintet that stayed together for the next three years. Uh, and we coached for three years with Vern Reynolds, the horn professor and hornist in the Eastman Brass Quintet. So... Under his guidance, we played all of the main literature of the time, plus a lot of the early music, particularly his own Centonis that he had arranged, but also things like Canzona Bergamasca and Bach Contrapunctus Number 9. But again, you have to remember, there wasn't a huge amount of literature. So I go back and look at our concert programs, and I realized that we would play a, a program with like couple of pieces of early music and then maybe the Boza Sonatina, the Malcolm Arnold Quintet, the Ewald and Gunther Schuller's first press quintet. That would all be on one <laughs> recital. Um, That's some heavy, heavy stuff. It was. It was. And it was great training. And that was another thing about Eastman. It really set my musical standards very high right away. Uh, what was expected of me as a player and a musician and a colleague and everything. Plus, the students were unbelievable. I mean, uh, it was fantastic for me to be around students that were mostly better and more experienced than I was. Now, some students had a hard time with that. Eastman was the kind of school that the the best person from your high school always, you know, wound up going there. And some people had a hard time dealing with the fact that 
lot of people were better than they were. For whatever reason, I just kind of embraced that right away and thought, well, this is, if I'm going to get better, might as well be around people that can show yeah. me the way. Surround yourself with people who are better. Yes, exactly. So uh, it got to towards the end of my time at Eastman, and a couple of big things happened. I, I started going to Chautauqua during the summers as a student. Mm -hmm. My first summer there, I studied with Chester Roberts, who had been for many years the tubist in the Cleveland Orchestra. Really wonderful man. Had a very nice summer with him. But he retired, and Toby Hanks took over the position the next summer. So I went in I, again my, as the second summer, and I took my first lesson with Toby met him and, and had a lesson. And after one hour, I thought, this is the guy I want to study with in graduate school. Uh, at the time, he was teaching at a number of different schools besides playing in the New York City Ballet and the New York Brass Quintet. So I applied. He, he thought that Yale would be the best fit for me among the schools that he taught at. So I applied to Yale to graduate school and decided to go there right away and do my master's. Now, admittedly, I was already taking orchestra auditions. But I, I decided if I don't get an orchestra job or some kind of permanent job, I'll go right to graduate school. You know, it's funny. I've thought about this a lot. It's not like I had already made up my mind that I was going to be a college professor, but somehow I must have realized that that was a good possibility as a career. And in those days, you really had to have your master's in order to be considered for a job. Doctorate wasn't really necessary yet, especially if you had professional experience. So anyway, I, I went on to Yale, studied with Toby, had a wonderful time there because the School of Music at Yale is only a graduate school. So you were around, again, oh, other musicians. Yeah, with experience. Yeah. And it was a small group. They basically accepted enough students to have an orchestra. Usually there were two tuba students at any one given time. And uh, Toby would come up one day a week and we'd have our lessons and then meet for sort of a master class. And eventually he might join us to play quartets. Um, one of the main things that happened to me, actually two of the main things, I guess I would say at Yale, was we put together a group of current students and recent students that were still in New Haven and formed what we called the New Haven Tuba Consort and started playing and I started writing for Tuba Quartet or Ensemble. Some of my early stuff was actually for five or six parts. Um, and the other thing related to that is I studied jazz arranging and, and worked on arranging at Eastman. But when I got to Yale, those opportunities weren't really there. So I thought, well, I'd like to try composing because I really like this creative side of things. And I decided to start with my own instrument because sure. at the time we needed new literature. There was very, compared to today, almost no tuba literature at all. So the first thing I ever wrote was an unaccompanied piece for, for solo tuba, which I changed the title of over the years, but it eventually came to be known as Suite Number One. And then wow. I started writing for multiple tubas. So dances and music for tubas, I wrote while I was in graduate school and premiered while I was in graduate school. I didn't realize you wrote them while you were there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool. The Suite and those two pieces I wrote while I was at Yale. And in fact, the premiere performance of dances I did on my master's recital and it's the only time in my entire playing career that I ever performed anything on the F-tuba. I borrowed Toby's F-tuba, and I played the solo part on F, but I never bought an F-tuba, and I was, a, until about 1993, I was strictly a C-tuba player. I had two or three different sizes of instruments, but everything I played was on C. So anyway, I was coming towards the end of my time at Yale, and I thought, you know, I really am interested in going to New York to freelance if I don't get an orchestra job. Because when they come up, I take an audition. The Baltimore Symphony, I think, came up at that time when Danny Brown got the job. And, you know, there were a few auditions, as there usually are for us. Um, but I had really kind of planned on going to New York. The other thing I forgot to mention, which I should have because it's pretty important, is that the day before I graduated from Eastman, I got married. Uh, it was kind of a big weekend. Um and so Meg and I, we, you know, were making these decisions together, and she was very up for the idea of going to New York, even though she didn't really have a career path per se. She was just very interested in going to the city, finding a job, and we found a, went and found an apartment. And, you know, we, we arrived in New York in September of 1975, and neither one of us had any work 
of any kind. Uh, but it was very exciting. We didn't have kids yet or anything. And uh, Meg found a job almost immediately uh, at a German bakery on the east side because she spoke fluent German. And I started working. I mean, my the first month as a freelancer uh, kind of set the tone for particularly the beginning of the six years that I spent as a freelancer in New York City. I uh, I played second tuba with Toby in a concert by the American Composers Orchestra in Carnegie Hall. I subbed for Sam Palafian in a brass quintet that he played wow. in at the time called Corporal Kowalski's Solid Silver Chromium Plated Authentic Portable Brass Band. <laughs> you got to remember, this was the 70s. <laughs> um, and... I also did a recording session with a jazz singer named Phoebe Snow that Howard Johnson, uh, the late okay. Howard Johnson, put together a band which was mostly uh, African-American tuba players, but I wound up performing for years with them, rehearsing and performing. Um, so I spent the next six years freelancing in New York. I did kind of everything you could do as a tuba player. Uh, lots of chamber music. I think I played in 20 different brass quintets while I was in New York. From the American brass quintet on one end of the spectrum down to little pickup groups that would do gigs in New Jersey and whatnot. Uh, I did a lot of school concerts. I also early on did a lot of subbing for other players that had been there before me. Uh, Toby, of course, Sam Palafian, and uh, Stephen Johns. Uh, we. I also became a member of the New York Tuba Quartet, which were those three guys plus me. Everybody always thought it was kind of hilarious that John Stevens and Stephen Johns played in the same group. <laughs> and actually, Steve and I, we got called sometimes mistakenly when they meant to call oh, the other funny. person. Yeah. So uh, there was also a bass singer in New York at the time who worked a lot named John Stevens. And I got called by a oratorio society in Connecticut once to do the Haydn creation. And I explained to <laughs> I explained to them that I think they had the wrong guy, the wrong Johnson. Um, but anyway, I I, uh, I should also mention. Sorry to keep rambling on about this, but it's a complicated journey to get from yep. then to now. Uh, <laughs> while I was in graduate school, I started going to Aspen during the summers. Okay. Um, for a few years, they didn't have a a teacher out there so much as they they hired four young tuba players to go out and do all the playing, the professional playing and the student playing. Uh, Chuck England, Tom Walsh, Warren Deck, and myself were those four guys. Eventually, the other three guys sort of went on to do other things, and I wound up spending five years out there, and eventually, Abe Torchinsky came back and did all the teaching, and I played in the festival orchestra and the chamber orchestra when they needed a tubist. So that was a great experience, and it was a great yeah. way to get out of New York during the summer when work was slower and the city was hot, and you know, right, right. just a great, great time. Um, the sort of the, the culmination of my time in New York, uh, was, um, in 1979, I got hired to be the original tubist in the Broadway show Barnum, which was like the ultimate show for a tuba player because we were on stage in costume, actually had choreography as part of the show. And That's there was so this, um, it was a great part, but also I opened the second act every night with this sousaphone solo marching down the main aisle of the theater. I mean, so I, 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 you know, in this tune called Come Follow the Band, I had borrowed a sousaphone from Mike Thornton, who by then was the tubist in the Cincinnati Symphony. We had been in grad school together at Yale. And so I, I played sousaphone and tuba in that show for about 500 performances. Um... I also did a lot of work on the road with Chuck Maggioni. He was a really big deal by then, and he hired a brass section to tour with a lot. And as part of that tour, uh, uh, one of the horn hornists, fantastic horn player named Jerry Peel, who was uh, on the faculty at the University of Miami, and I got to know him. We became good friends. And he called me up one day and said, uh, we're looking for a tuba professor. Connie Weldon went into administration and the person who had followed her wasn't really working out. And we're wondering if you'd be interested in the job. So by then, Meg and I had lived in a one bedroom apartment in Manhattan for almost right. six years. We were looking for bigger housing. We were thinking about starting a family. The idea of going to a, a job with a little more security and some benefits and uh, was appealing. So. Right. 
I went down and interviewed and auditioned for the job. I got the job, and in the uh, summer of 1981, we moved to Miami. And I spent four years there as the professor. And then uh, that, <laughs> it's funny, it got to the point, I also played in an orchestra, which started out as the Fort Lauderdale Symphony and eventually became the Philharmonic Orchestra of Florida. The orchestra no longer exists. Uh, but that orchestra became very busy also doing the Miami Opera at the time, got to the point where my last couple of years, we had over 150 services with the orchestra. Wow. So that meant that between that and the full-time teaching job, I had almost no time at all. We had had our first daughter by then. It, It was getting to the point where I really couldn't continue to do both jobs. So it just happened that right at that time, John Ailey, the trumpet professor here at UW-Madison and uh, University of Wisconsin, called me and said they were looking for a tuba professor. Um, John and I had worked in New York together. He was in the American Brass Quintet, and I did a lot of playing with them. Uh, So I was very interested in that, actually. Miami was an interesting place to live for four years, but Florida was not where I wanted to spend the rest of my life, being from upstate New York. I can imagine. I looked on a map and noticed that Madison was just about at the same latitude as Buffalo. So, uh, and Meg was interested in making the move too, so that we could have kind of a normal life with me only doing one job. So I came up, interviewed for the job. I think they interviewed four people. I wound up getting the job and uh, moved to Madison in 1985 um, and spent the rest of my career here until I retired in 2014. So I, I, Uh, part of the job was playing in the Wisconsin Brass Quintet. It was like a third of the job. And that was a big attraction for me because playing chamber music has always been above everything else, what I enjoy the most. Um, So, you know, I I played in the quintet and taught tuba and euphonium and also got more and more active as a composer as the years went on. Um, You know, that became a bigger and bigger part of my life so that when I retired seven years ago, I stopped playing, actually, because I knew that I wanted to spend my time as a musician primarily writing, uh, composing and arranging. (sighs) Okay, sorry. So that's a long, a long slide from the beginning to now. It's a lot. I mean, you've gone from, you know, like your, your school years to your freelance years to you know, your teaching years, but you did so much at each sort of stage. Yeah. Um, now, a, a question for you related to a little bit of what you were talking about. I, I know that there are musicians out there that they don't like, they don't want to necessarily be music educators at like the middle or high school level. You know, they maybe don't want to be college professors. They don't want to be an orchestral musician, but they are interested in potentially doing what you did after um, Yale and going in freelancing Mm -hmm. in New York or another big city. Do you have any particular advice for those students that may wish to, uh, follow that path? Sure. Um, well, it, it really helps to work on your sight reading. (laughs) Uh, you want to, the more skills you have as a player and a musician, the better chance you have of working and as many different possibilities as you can. And you got to remember as a freelancer, you're looking to put food on the table and pay the rent. So everything, it's important to be able to do as many things as possible and do them really well. Uh, it, one of the things that doesn't get talked about a lot, but I think is hugely important, is that it's important to be the kind of person that people want to work with. When I was in New York, there were players that were okay. They were not fantastic, but they were great people and people, they were good enough to do the job and people really liked to work with them and they worked a lot. There were also a few players that were really fantastic players, but they were not terribly wonderful people to work with and they didn't work so much. So uh, one of the best pieces of advice I got when I was new to the freelance scene was keep your mouth closed and your ears open. And yeah, that, like that that was true all the way through. Just list, learn and listen, you know. Um, as a tuba player, you didn't have the issue that, you know, sometimes a trumpet player walks into a jazz band rehearsal or a recording session or something like that, and a young player makes this mistake of sitting down in the first trumpet chair. 
not a good idea. That didn't come up as a tuba player so much, but still, you, you wanted to really... One of the reasons you want to keep your mouth shut and your ears open is when you go into a gig for the first time, whatever it might be, you don't really know what the politics are. You don't right. really know who likes who and, and everything. So it, it's best not to appear to take sides because at the beginning, you might take accidentally take the wrong side, you know. Yeah. Uh, also, musically, it's really important to be a good listener. And I think that's actually true both in performing and teaching. Ta uh, um, take in everything. Pay attention. You know, uh, see and hear everything that's going on and be able to integrate yourself into that. Uh, I often had, well, the, the example that I've often used uh, at what it means to be a freelancer is I got a call in New York one weekend. Could I come into the New York City Opera and play uh, Tosca on Friday night and La Boheme on Saturday night? And by the way, there would be no rehearsal, yep. and I had to perform them on an old E-flat chimbasso that the opera owned because some Italian opera company had left it there. Oh, that sounds terrible. So <laughs> I'd never played Tosca, I'd never played La Boheme, I'd never played an E-flat tuba, and I'd never played a chimbasso. So, of course, I said yes. Right, and, right, of and course. Because, you know, you're looking to work. And I got there early and figured out the instrument and uh, the transpositions. And luckily, they're both Puccini operas, which means a lot of whole notes and not a lot of eighth notes like Verdi operas. Right. And uh, I, I figured, look, if I do even an OK job, everybody will think it's fantastic because the regular tuba player was sick. They were really stuck. And it went just fine. And, and every time you play as a freelancer, you want people afterwards to say, oh, yeah, that person was really good. They played great. They were really nice. You're trying to sort of widen the sphere of who knows who you are and what you can do constantly when you're freelancing. Yeah. Oh, that makes, makes perfect sense. I've, it's interesting hearing this advice again and realizing <laughs> and hearing it from your mouth and realizing that I... I knew I got the information from somewhere when I passed along to my own students, and now I know where it's coming from. Yeah. Um, so as I, I said at the beginning of the podcast, I really I do consider you, you know, one of my biggest role models and inspiration as a, as a teacher, as a performer, as a chamber musician. And as I just said, uh, I use a lot of your catchphrases or advice and pass them along to my own students. You've mentioned a few names throughout your, you know, um, a bit ago of who has been your kind of biggest inspirations. But out of all the people that you've spent time with, whether musicians, non-musicians, uh, who is or was kind of your biggest role model or inspiration? Well, I actually, I thought about this uh, and I, I really have to go back to my folks, to my parents. They were not musicians by any means, but they were musical people. And when I was growing up, a very typical evening's activity in my house, because I was an only child, was the three of us sitting around in our living room. My dad played a little guitar, and we would sit around and sing in harmony for hours. Yeah. Uh, and also, when I said I was going to go into music and become a tuba player, my parents didn't kind of blanch or go, oh, my gosh, how are you going to make a living doing that? They said, <laughs> OK, go for it. You know, I mean, so that they really, I, I feel like... Uh, nurtured the beginning of all this really nicely. My high school band director, Nord Busky, was fabulous. And he he taught me a lot having to do with music, but also having to do with being a professional that really stuck with me over the years. Um, I had great teachers at Eastman. And I, I have to say, though, that in addition to the great faculty there, there were so many fantastic students and particularly brass students that I was in school with that were either a little older than me or about my age that were just, I learned so much from my student colleagues. Yeah. Of all my teachers, particularly on the tuba, Toby Hanks was the guy who really, we just, we're very different kinds of people in many ways, but we just hit it off. And he, he was... I, I appreciate the fact that you feel that I meant a lot to your career, and I suppose Toby was that to me. Um, yeah. I, again, as a, as a player and more as a musician and somebody who was going to try to make their way in the music profession. Yeah. Um, so when I got to New York, 
he, uh, we, you know, he had to be a little careful. He, he didn't want me to be seen as kind of Toby's boy, if you will, coming to town. But he was a great mentor when I was getting started there. And we remained friends all throughout his lifetime until he sadly passed away in January. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, that's it's it's interesting. Again, like, you know, I've also had very different role models, I suppose, throughout life for different reasons, both inside of music and outside of it. So that's and it's interesting for me just as a, you know, I, I refer to you a lot in terms of when I, you know, talk about my role models. And a lot of that more so has to do with when I feel as though I kind of developed into, as you said earlier, a musician and not just a tuba player. Right. So kind of, and I, I've always sort of, and you, I think it was your, you think it was you that said this, you know, I, cause I used to credit you with that. And you said, no, I just opened the door to allow you to do it. So I think that's also, it's important advice for me as a teacher now that like, I am not turning these students into, you know, fabulous musicians. I'm kind of opening doors for them right. to become who they are. Exactly. So. And by the way, speaking of inspirations, before we leave this topic, I should mention that a really large group of people that were very inspiring to me for a long, long time were all my students. And particularly, you know this as a teacher, you have some students that you're a little closer to than others. And, and sure. that that large group of students that I remain good friends and, and colleagues with were hugely important to me in many ways. I, I I feel like as a teacher, you learn as much from your students or maybe even more than they learn from you. So uh, <laughs> I, I have to thank you for being one of those people. <laughs> um, so, you, yeah, you eventually, you did become, after your freelancing time, you became a teacher primarily yeah. for your career. And you moved you know, down to Miami, as you said, what, was there a particular reason that prompted you to do that? Was it a change of lifestyle? You said mentioned getting out of New York. Just did you have a, a burning desire to teach? You know, what was there anything in particular that drove you to change? That's that? a great question, Steph. Um, you know, Megan, I loved living in New York and I loved freelancing and I was still doing Barnum. We were in a very successful time of our lives. But when I got the call about Miami, I sort of said, okay, 10 years from now, are there any kind of crummy gigs that I'm doing now that I'll be able to say no to 10 years from now? And I realized as a tuba player, no, there were not. Uh, the Once Barnum closed, which it inevitably would and did after a couple of years, um, you know, I'd go back to really kind of struggling a bit in the freelance life. So initially... Uh, it was attractive to get into a more stable situation. It didn't take me very long uh, at the University of Miami to realize that I really liked uh, the variety. Uh, first of all, I really loved working with people. So teaching was a great career for me to be in. But every day I was teaching private lessons. I was coaching chamber music. I was conducting a tube ensemble and a brass choir. I was playing in an orchestra. I was playing in an opera orchestra. I was still in a varied situation, just like freelancing. Sure. Plus I was getting a regular paycheck and had health insurance. <laughs> and, you know, there were, <laughs> but fairly quickly on, I realized that I liked teaching and I thought, yeah, this is, this is a good career path for me. Uh, also, there, there's a lot of things I think that are important about becoming a good teacher. And one of them for me, almost right away, I realized, look, I've spent, as all young musicians do, I've spent my whole life so far trying to further my own career uh, and kind of get ahead, if you will. And when I became a, a university professor, I took the attitude that it no longer was so much about my career as about my students' careers. Now, that didn't mean I lowered my standards for myself or wanted to be any less successful, but I felt like my highest priority needed to be my students, right. and I would continue to work on you know, being a, a role model as a player and a teacher and a person for them in every way that I possibly could. So that, and that philosophy really stayed with me all the way until I retired from teaching. Great. So, and you retired in 2014, yeah. correct, from University of Wisconsin-Madison. 
And as you mentioned earlier, you you said you basically, I mean, you did stop playing altogether. Yeah. And uh, I have you bas- also pretty much stopped teaching as well? You know, I... Um... I continued to do some master classes and some teaching residencies at universities, and I still do that when the opportunity comes up. Uh, It's not a lot, but I I still really, I didn't stop teaching because I stopped enjoying teaching. Uh, I still do enjoy it very much. Um, But I realized that as the years go by here, it's going to get less and less. Uh, And that was okay with me. I mean, the, the playing went away right away. The teaching is sort of on a kind of a long diminuendo, you might say. But I'm still very active composing. And right. uh, up until we got into the, the COVID year here, uh, I was conducting a really terrific professional brass ensemble here in, that's right. in Wisconsin called the Isthmus Brass. So that, that's also been a delight in the years since retirement. But, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm a person that enjoys a lot of things in life. I didn't want to retire and sit around twiddling my thumbs or just still be a musician. So it's, I'm really glad that it's still a part of my, my life. Great. Do you, do you miss perform? Like, I mean, you said you do teach a little bit still and you obviously you're still composing. Do you miss performing? At all? You know, everybody asks me that, and particularly when I first retired and said I wasn't playing yeah. anymore, particularly other musicians would look at me like, really? I, we find that very unbelievable. Uh, I have to be honest and say that right from the beginning, I did not miss, I, I shouldn't say I, I do miss performing, but I did okay. not miss having my life be governed by practicing and, you know, that. needing to be, I played the tuba for 51 years. Yeah. You know, I started when I was 11 years old. That's a long time to do something and kind of have your daily life governed by the fact that you need to have that horn on your face regularly. Yep. And I thought in retirement, I don't want to be burdened by that. Uh, and and also the, the, the number of opportunities to play, even if I was still playing, are really not very substantial. So I, sure. I thought I'd, and by then composing had become so much more a part of my career that I, I, that creative side was where I really wanted to put my marbles now that I still have them uh, in retirement. <laughs> Great. Now that makes, that makes a lot of sense, I think. So I, we talked a bit about this too, but you've, you know, had a pretty substantial, I'll say career life. Um, what do you view as your, in your mind, your biggest accomplishment in your career? Oh, boy. Um, well, there's a lot of them. I mean, I, I, I have to be honest. And, you know, I, Meg and I have been married for almost 48 years and we have two wonderful daughters. There's a couple of pretty big accomplishments right there. I realize Definitely. they're not career accomplishments, but. No, the life, the life accomplishments I was also going to ask about. So that's perfect. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, I have four grandsons and I've had a, I feel like I've had a very charmed life in many ways. Living it with great family and having a lot of great friends. As an only child, I, I learned to make really good friends as a young age, and I've always sort of been that way. Well, and I, I think it's important, too, that, well, younger musicians and younger professionals especially, I, I needed to hear it as a young student and then professional, that there's more to life than what you do for your career and that you are going to value you know, or view as an accomplishment way more than just what you are accomplishing at your job every day. I agree. So uh, I think that's important to acknowledge that. Yeah, I, I've always maintained that it's possible to maintain a balance between your yes. personal and your professional life without sacrificing your either one in any way. Right. You know, and I think everybody's always either having to or trying to seek that. Uh, I'm very proud of the fact that I was able to put together a successful career as a freelancer in New York because there's no place in the world where there's a bigger pool of really high quality musicians. So that that meant a lot to me. Um, I would say the fact that I've had many, many, many really successful and wonderful students over the years uh, is another thing I'm very proud of. And I'm 
you know, there are people like yourself that are, I, I think at one time I had about 25 people that either were or had been university professors. Um, yeah. But it's also the public school music teachers and even a fairly large group of my former students that wound up having careers in things outside of music. But they sure. really, you know, found their way in the world and have been very successful. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that I've been able to contribute to the development of repertoire for our instruments, the tuba and euphonium, both as a player, uh, as a teacher, and particularly as a composer and arranger. Um, I, I guess I just feel like that's a way that I've contributed to our world in a way that maybe other tuba players have not. Definitely. Um, I've got now a pretty large body of compositions, many of which are for brass and particularly for our instruments. I'm, I, I'm really glad about that. A, a couple of specific things. Uh, I think when I received the commission from the Chicago Symphony to write the tuba concerto for Gene Pecorni, I have to list that as a career highlight. I mean, oh yeah. Uh, I when when I got the message from Gene that this was going to happen, I kind of had to sit down and take a few deep breaths because. You know, I, I, wow. Um, also, I remember I, I attended the rehearsals for the premiere performance. And at one point during the rehearsal, they asked me to come up on stage and talk to the orchestra a bit about the piece. And I remember feeling when I was doing that, okay, John, you're on the stage of Orchestra Hall in Chicago talking to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra about your composition that they commissioned you to write for them. I nearly had to sit down again. I mean, that, that you know, that, that was a big deal. And similar to that, I, I have to say that I've, I'm very proud of the fact that I received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Tube Euphonium Association. Yep. And particularly when I was 56 years old, which I didn't feel like was really anywhere near yet the end of my musical yeah, lifetime, sure. if you will. But again, I think the thing that really made an impact on me was that a huge number of the people on that list uh, were the giants in our profession that I looked up to when I was younger. I mean, to be on a, a, a list of the people in our world with folks like Roger Bobo and Harvey Phillips and Arnold Jacobs and people like that meant a great deal to me and still does. Um, so those are a couple of specific little things uh, that I feel like I have to mention. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's been a great life. And and I've always said to people, boy, if, if you want to go into music and you're really passionate about doing it, then do it. I mean, for me, it's been yes, a wonderful life and career. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so what, in your mind, and this is sort of changing tracks slightly here, but what makes a good teacher you I mentioned someone earlier some you know that you have to have the ability to you know listen I think I remember you saying that a bit earlier in the hour you were listening um, <laughs> I was listening <laughs> I'm not just sitting here yeah. uh you have to be absolutely have the ability to listen but uh, what do you have any other thoughts yeah I do um I, I I guess I sort of mentioned this earlier too I think you have to really care for your students we, we yeah. do one-on-one -on -one teaching, and I think you have to take that just as seriously as a parent takes parenting. Um, and one of the things that means to me is I know there are teachers out there, and there have been many, and some of them have probably been quite good, who sort of take the tack that this is what I believe, this is what I do, this is how I teach. You have to, mm -hmm. If you're going to study with me, you have to kind of buy into my program. Uh, Personally, I don't really believe in teaching that way. I feel like every student is different. Sure, we're trying to accomplish a lot of the same things, and if you make a list of 20 students, you're going to see a lot of similarities in terms of the literature you're using and the things you're emphasizing. But I really think like what we do as private music teachers is very personal. And that's where the listening part comes in. You've got to be aware of what the strengths and weaknesses of your students are and what you can use. I'll give you an example that I'm sure you remember me talking about with you early on when you were studying with me. One of the first questions I would ask every student in my studio was, 
what sports they liked, and particularly if there was a sport yes. that they had played. So that, you know, being a sports guy myself, I knew then that I could use those analogies in my teaching. Like I, had, I remember having a student who was a volleyball player. So I, I, I'm not a particularly a volleyball player, but I kind of follow everything so I can speak the lingo a little bit. And, and I would use references to that in order to get something to click in and make sense. I use analogies, as you know, a lot in my teaching because I believe yes. that everything we do as musicians and players is related to life in general in some way. Um, and I was always looking for ways to sort of make the light bulb go on, if you will, with students. Um, yeah, I, uh, I had another thought, but it's you know one of the things about being my age is thoughts go in and out of your head, you know pretty quickly. Um, again, I, I, I've always felt that good teaching requires uh, giving your students the chance to learn about th the three main aspects of what it takes to be a musician, the craft, the art, and the business. In fact, a few years ago, I wrote an article for our journal called Take a Cab to Success, Craft, Art, and Business. Um, I like that. And I, I must say, in all honesty, that sometimes I feel that we get too bogged down in the craft at the expense of the other two. Now, look, it doesn't do you any good to be a great artist and not have the skills on the instrument you need to succeed. But neither does it do any good to be a terrific player and yet not really have anything to say or the ability to turn a yeah. phrase or make music in a meaningful way that's going to communicate something to somebody. So I guess I took the philosophy of sort of, if, if you think of those craft, art, and business as three bars that we're constantly trying to raise, I tried to raise them all you know, kind of equally in my teaching. Now, yeah. you might have a lesson where you'd be concentrating totally on technique and the craft of playing the instrument. But in right, the next right. lesson, you might be totally away from that and really thinking about how to shape a phrase and how long of a pause to take here and how much dynamic contrast to make or, you know, you need to make a retard here. Hey, it says tenuto on the music. How about holding that note a little long? You know, I mean, and then you might have a lesson where you'd be talking about the freelance business and what it takes and, you know, how to put your resume together and that kind of thing. So I guess maybe overall, that's the biggest thing that I thought was important in teaching was to, to try to create all round musicians and people that would have the ability to, to succeed. Great. Now that's, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, what about, what makes a good um, performer or what advice would you give? Yeah. What, what makes a good performer? Well, let's take a very basic, uh, a speci specific thing that we all have to do well, but I think this leads to discussion about everything in general. Let's talk about intonation. We have to play in order to be successful on our instrument, on brass instruments, we have to play yeah. in tune. So the first thing Agreed. we have to do is play in tune with ourselves. We have to yes. know our instruments. We have to know, okay, I got to push my first valve in when I play a D because it's typically a little low and I got to pull it out for a C sharp because that's typically a little high and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Once you go through and you learn all that, then you have to play in tune with the people that you're making music with. And the best way to do that is to always assume that you're the problem. Because if everybody's doing that, then everybody's going to constantly be adjusting and making sure that the team effort, if you will, is what it should be. So that leads me to my next comment, which is that it is a team effort. And again, here's yeah. where it's like sports. You know, a brass quintet isn't so different from a basketball team. You know, there might be at any given moment one or two or three people in the group that take precedence. But overall, every person in a brass quintet has 20% of the creative and uh, execution, if you will, responsibility for making the music happen. Um, so I, I think you've got to play that role. Uh, if you're the tuba player in an orchestra, for example, I've never believed that you've got to make sure that you're heard on the bottom over and above everybody else. You've got to learn to blend. Look, it's no different than life in general. How are you going to succeed at anything you do? You have to learn to get along with other people. In our case, it has to be musically as well as personally. And 
you have to become a contributing member of whatever team you're on at any given time. And by the way, that's one of the things that I really liked about freelancing is that maybe five days a week I was on a different team with different people doing different things, which was really challenging and rewarding at the same time. Yeah, no, I understand that. Even uh, you've mentioned this as well as a as a college professor, you're having to. I mean, we do a lot of freelancing, or not necessarily right in this exact moment, with kind of at the, I guess, middle end of of COVID. Um, but we have to be have the ability to kind of change hats and do different things, whether on campus or off campus. And sure, yeah, it does makes the job a lot more interesting and fulfilling and yes. not going and doing this exact same thing every single day, day after day. I couldn't agree more. I, I feel like the the variety of my own career in life and music has been one of the very best things about it. Yeah, that's great. Um, so you, you gave, you just gave a lot of advice, but if you had one piece of advice, you would give an aspiring musician, like let's say, let's like back it all the way up to like middle school. Wow. An aspiring musician, what would you tell them? You know me, boiling things down to one thing is really hard for me. (laughs) But I think actually for young people, I think one of the best things they can do if they've already decided that they like music, which, you know, makes sense. Listen to as much music as you can of all types and, and listen actively. I mean, all of us are pretty good at passive listening. Put the radio on in your Mm -hmm. car and you're listening along. But spend a bit of time listening actively. What's going on here? Why do I like this? You know, is this a great melody? Is there something? Oh, I like the instrumentation. What's all that percussion? You know, whatever it might be. Uh, and, And just we grow so much from the music that we listen to because everything that goes in one way or another kind of stays in there forever. Uh, And, and we, we base everything we do as players and writers and teachers on that library that we've got in our brains, you know? So it's great to sort of start adding to that library at an early age. No, that's fantastic advice. It's, it's, it's interesting because I've actually, I think I've become more aware of that in the past few years, like how much when I do listen to music, how much I am thinking about, oh, I like this about this, and I like the color here, or I like the you know rhythmic texture here, or I like the way this person handles this melodic phrase, and yeah, you know, it is. You start really listening more carefully, and I think that's if I'd started doing that as a younger person, that but, <laughs> what that could have led to. But you're doing it now because you're a teacher, and the best way to learn yeah, is to be a true. teacher. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair enough. So. So I just, John, I just want to say thank you so much for being, being willing to chat with me today. Um, well, it re- means a lot to me. And uh, I think your words of advice are great for anybody to listen to. Well, I need to thank you for asking. I mean, the, the, you know, the relationships we make with students, as you and I both know, because we've been close friends ever since we started that relationship many years ago, mm-hmm. uh, means a tremendous amount to me. And I, I can't tell you how much it means to that you you know, uh, feel like I've had some influence on who you are as a person and and a musician. It means a great deal. So thanks a lot. Oh, thank you. So just to wrap up here, um, if you're a brass player or even if you're not, be sure to check out some of John's compositions. Uh, He writes for every single brass instrument at this point, both solo and in chamber music. He has a duet for tuba and fill-in-the-blank brass instrument, um, and also a number of brass quintets as well. So be sure to, you know, if you are a brass player, buy some of the music, check it out. It's really, really great writing. And if you're not a brass player, but again, want to expand your listening ears, go ahead and you can pull up so much of his music is right there on YouTube. So again, thank you so much for listening today. Thank you, John, for being here. And as we say at the end of every podcast, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay unmuted.